We're going to get started here in a moment if you want to grab a seat and then sit in it. <laughs> what do we do with the seat after we grab it? <laughs> sit in it. <laughs> Uh, before we begin, did does anybody uh, did anybody want a copy of this who uh, didn't receive it, Troy? Yeah. Oh, would you mind helping pass those out? Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah. Okay, can you share one? Okay, there's more in the the welcome center too. Here you go, Roger. Maybe we can split up the work. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, Brennan and Cheryl are passing out the notes right now. Because someone forgot to pass them out. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, it is. I didn't have enough notes, so, you know. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and uh, pray, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning that you have created. We thank you for the life that you've given us. And more than that, we thank you for the life that we have in your Son. We thank you that you have given us your Word, that you have revealed uh, true things, that you have revealed things that, that we must know, and we can't know anywhere else. Father, as we think on uh, the necessity of your word this morning, as we think of the importance of Scripture, we pray that you'd help us to think rightly about Scripture, that there would be no other uh, competing authority uh, with your word in our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, last week, if you weren't here, I suggest listening to the recording that's online. Uh, Pastor Brennan w went through sort of why, why a confession of faith, and he addressed uh, what a confession of faith is, um, some common objections to a, a confession of faith, and so if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to listen to that online, and uh, as a side note, if you miss, in, miss a week, uh, you can always listen to the recording. That's why I'm wearing this, this doodad on my face right here. Um, uh, also, on another note, I'm going to try really hard to, if you ask a question, I'm going to try to repeat the question. Uh, the reason I'm doing that is not uh, because I think you said it poorly. Uh, it's because we want people to be able to hear what the question was or what the statement was um, in the recording. Okay? 
So, this morning we're going to dive right in. Uh, Some things to note about the the 69 Confession of Faith. It's uh, separated into different chapters. Each chapter is a different topic. And then within those chapters there are paragraphs that deal with subtopics underneath that topic. And so the first chapter of the Confession uh, starts off in a very important place. The first chapter of the Confession addresses doctrine of Scripture. What are we to believe about God's Word? What does God's Word teach about itself? And that's an important starting place because everything else, uh, every other point of doctrine, every other uh, uh, theological idea needs to come from, be grounded in God's Word. And so if we have a, a, a false idea of Scripture, if we have a wrong idea of what God's Word is, we don't have a foundation. Our, our, we're starting off on a poor uh, point. And so uh, this week we're going to look at the necessity of Scripture. And just some historical backdrop I, th- I think would be helpful and important for us. Uh, this was written uh, in the 1600s. And uh, what was going on is you had sort of three different groups. More than this, but you had uh, the Roman Catholic Church. On one side you had, um, if we could just group them all together, you'd have the Reformers, which is a pretty broad group. Those who were... Uh, fighting against what Roman Catholicism was, um, realizing that uh, they were teaching some false things, some, some harmful things. So you had Roman Catholicism, the Reformers, and a, a subsect of the Reformers uh, you had what was called the Enthusiasts. Now, it sounds like a good thing, be enthusiastic or uh, something like that, but, but it was not a good thing to be an enthusiast. Okay, And each of these different groups had a different view of Scripture, had a different view of God's Word. And this is the context that uh, this chapter was written in. And on one side, you have Roman Catholicism, which teaches that uh, our authority is Scripture. And uh, tradition would be a broad way to say that. Within tradition, you have, they believe that there was a, an oral tradition passed down from the apostles uh, that they kept. There's, since it's oral, there's no way for them to prove that that was the case, uh, which that's pretty helpful, huh? <laughs> and also you have the, the, basically what they said the church had always taught was also included with tradition. So you have two sort of authority, uh, ultimate authorities as to what we're to believe and what we're to do. You have scripture and tradition. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the enthusiasts who, if they said this, um, say scripture, some would even deny that, and new revelation. Yes. They taught uh, that uh, perhaps, uh, there's a, a wide range of beliefs within this group, but that uh, perhaps the scripture is God's word, 
But because we have the Holy Spirit, God still speaks to us today. He gives us new revelation, new insight. Um, So an example of a group uh, that would come from this would be the Quakers. Uh, Again, Quakerism today has a range of beliefs, but uh, George Fox, the the founder of uh, the the Friends, uh, Quakers, uh, taught that uh, basically Scripture was the dead letter. He was taking that, that verse out of context that Scripture is old and crusty and sort of uh, archaic. We have the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through impressions or speaks inside here. And so uh, we don't really need Scripture. We have the fresh revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so again, they, they added to Scripture. There's Scripture and these sort of new uh, revelations. Um, again, a, a range of beliefs, sort of the more crazy instances of this. There was a man who believed that he was called by God to uh, be naked. He had a prophetic office of nudity, I guess. And, uh, and so that's what he decided to do and believed that that was God's will uh, for his life. Okay, so you have these two groups. Very, they look very different. Roman Catholicism and enthusiasts look very different, but you can see they're, they're similar in the sense that it was Scripture and something else. Scripture and something else. And so in our, uh, the context that this was written in, uh, we have the Reformers who are saying, no, our ultimate authority is Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Alone, And so we'll see this sort of, they're dealing with uh, these two errors as they're working through uh, the uh, writing their doctrine of Scripture. And this is really nothing new, uh, even for their time. You know, Scripture and traditions. What, what did the Pharisees do? They, they made their tradition to be on the same plane, the same level as the commands of God. In some, in some instances, their tradition actually became more important than the commands of God, right? So it's nothing new. And on the other side, Scripture and New Revelation in the early church, you had a group called the Montanists. Uh, they believed that they had, uh, this was in the second century, they believed that they had new revelation uh, from God, uh, leading them to do such things. They, they believed that women could be bishops, um, they believed if you lapsed in the faith, if you were under persecution and you denied the faith, that you couldn't come back uh, into the church. Again, from claims of new revelation, God had told them these things, extra things not found in Scripture. And even today, right, I, th- I think we can see that we have these things carry on. There's, there's nothing really new, just repackaged versions of old things. Uh, we still have Roman Catholicism, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, you know, they believe in Scripture and there are publications that teach you how to read the Bible and uh, they would even say that those publications are better than reading Scripture. You're better off reading their, you know, uh, their magazines. Uh, even us, uh, within, within Christianity, we, we can be tempted to make our traditions, the commands of men, on the same level of, of God's Word. Um, and then on the other side, my, my background, um, I grew up, uh, in, in the Pentecostal church and, and uh, a charismatic church, Christians, true believers, but who, who claim uh, new revelation, right? That God speaks in here 
And again, there's a wide range of, of beliefs with that, some uh, more outrageous than others. Uh, another group that would be very different, you know, in terms of unbelievers. Can you think of another group who is an unbelieving group? We wouldn't call them Christians who believe in the Bible and New Revelation. Mormons, right? It will be the Bible and God spoke to Joseph Smith, providing new revelation. And so, yes, they, they claim that the Bible is authoritative and the new revelation that Joseph uh, Smith got. And so, uh, even though this was written in the 17th century, what we're going to look at, it still is applicable today. There truly is nothing new uh, under the sun. And so the question we're going to look at today uh, with this backdrop in mind is, why is Scripture absolutely necessary? Why is Scripture absolutely necessary? And we're going to see the answer to that. Uh, scripture is absolutely necessary because uh, general revelation, we're explain what that means, but general revelation, God's revelation and creation is insufficient, can't save us. And we'll see that Scripture is absolutely necessary because uh, there's been a, a God no longer uh, has special revelation. He no longer speaks in the way that he used to. And so because of that, this is absolutely necessary. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. We'll see, first of all, Scripture's uniqueness. Scripture's uniqueness. The first uh, statement there in the confession, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, an infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, we could take that statement at face value, but if Scripture is our ultimate authority, what should we do? Make sure that's in Scripture, right? So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14 in a moment. Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, verse 14, he writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We see here in this passage, we see Scripture's source. It's God-breathed, right? God is the author of it. And so if God is the author of it, we can make some logical conclusions. If God is the author of it, it's certain. It won't fail us. It's not uncertain because God wrote it. Also, it's infallible. That means it cannot error. You have inerrant, which means it has no errors. It's, this is a much stronger word. Infallible means it cannot error. 
Why can it not err? Because who wrote it? God. And if God himself cannot err, then his word, the things that he has said, cannot err. So it's certain and infallible. Furthermore, in this passage, we see Scripture's efficacy, its uh, ability, its effectiveness, that it's profitable to make the man of God complete. It's profitable to make the man of, com- uh, the man of God complete. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Do you need anything else, uh, another authority? Do you need tradition or new revelation to make the man of God complete? No. Scripture, God's word, is effective to making the man of God complete. It's, it's sufficient. It's enough. And, um, you know, I give the, the illustration, if I were to go to uh, Gordon Ramsay's restaurant and uh, order you know, a, a prime steak, I, I don't know what the best type of steak is, whatever that is, and he made it himself, and it's cooked pr- to perfection, and it, it goes, comes to my table, and I say, hey, can I have some A1 sauce? And then I just douse the steak in A1 sauce. What am I saying about that steak? It doesn't taste good enough. It's not sufficient. It's not good enough in itself. Right? We're making a com- I would be making a comment about the sufficiency of that steak. And likewise, if we, we think that we need to add something to Scripture to make the man of God complete, if we need additional words of God if we need uh, the uh, tradition to make the man of God complete, if that is also necessary, we're making a comment about Scripture, aren't we? We're saying that Scripture is not sufficient to make the man of God complete. Now, does that mean we don't listen uh, to voices from the past? That we don't listen to, tra- to, uh, to tradition? Well, no, right? Just like... Um, scripture is the ultimate authority. Does that mean a child shouldn't listen to his parents? A child should still listen to his parents. The scripture actually commands that, right? Is that surprising, Aaliyah? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and so scripture is sufficient. It's profitable to make the man of God complete. But what is it sufficient in? Because is scripture sufficient to teach you how to change a tire? Is Scripture sufficient to teach you how to make a perfect steak? No, it has a scope, right? It has, it has a, an area that it's sufficient for, right? We see in this passage that it's able to make a person wise for salvation. It's sufficient to save a person and equip that person for every good work. It's sufficient to make the man of God complete. That's its scope. And so, uh, Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of what? Of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's what it's sufficient for. And so, though it might not tell me how to change a tire, does it teach me how to change a tire to the glory of God? Yes. As a Christian, right? Can you, can you change a tire in a very ungodly way? Yes. All right? Sure, the mechanics in, in, in here have seen that. 
is there a way to, to change a tire in a way that glorifies and honors God? Yes. And Scripture is sufficient to tell us uh, what that is. So Scripture is unique. It's the only of its kind. It's written by God, sufficient for salvation, sufficient to equip the Christian for every good work. Let's also turn to, to Luke just to see a couple more passages here. Luke chapter 16. Uh, starting in verse 19. Uh, sorry, starting in verse 29. The passage starts in verse 19, but for the sake of time, we'll start in verse 29. Uh, this is the, the account that Jesus gives of the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember, uh, uh, Lazarus is this poor man. The rich man uh, doesn't, uh, isn't, uh, doesn't love him. They both end up uh, dead. One's on one side in Abraham's uh, bosom. The other is on the other side. Uh, the rich man's on the, the bad side of the, the chasm. And uh, the rich man wants uh, someone to come to his uh, family uh, and warn them. He has five brothers. He wants to warn them about this place of torment. In verse 29 we pick up, But Abraham said, Abraham's talking to the rich man, he says, They have Moses and the prophets. What would that be a summary statement of? What's Moses and the prophets referring to? Scripture, right? This Old Testament, what they, Scripture was for them at that time. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's saying, if, if only someone was raised from the dead, then they would repent. Which uh, points to what would happen with Christ, right? And in verse 31, what do we read? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Scripture is sufficient for salvation, more, uh, it, uh, more than the miracle, right? Uh, scripture is sufficient to save more than uh, the resurrection uh, from the dead, someone being able to witness that. That's a powerful statement about the ability and the sufficiency of Scripture, that it's enough. It's powerful enough. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah is uh, prophesying about the coming Assyrians who invade. And uh, we pick up in verse 19. And and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? If, so the people are tempted. This, this invasion is coming. Where do they look to for help? Where do they look to uh, for advice? Do they go to the mediums and the, the necromancers? Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Should they go to dead people to figure out what, what they should do? Verse 20. This is what they should do. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no understanding. So if people are speaking, if they're saying this thing or that thing, how should what they say be judged? What, what should it be judged according to? 
to the teaching and to the testimony. What's that? The Word. That's the standard. That's the rule that they're to look to. If, if they're not speaking according to this Word, they have no understanding. They, have, they don't have something, uh, new revelation. Scripture is the authority that uh, they were to look to and that we are to look to. It's the infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so Scripture is unique in that sense. But what makes it necessary? Again, what is our, our, our guiding question is, why is Scripture absolutely necessary? That's where we move on to the next statement here in the confession. The insufficiency of general revelation. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Now there's a lot of big words in there, isn't there? And I started off by using a big word, general revelation. And so before we dive into this, it would be helpful to define, define our terms. So what this passage is talking about is what has been historically referred to as General revelation. Other people call it other things, but general revelation as opposed to uh, special revelation. Now, right off the bat, what do you notice is in common about these two things, just looking at their words? They're both revelation, right? They're both things that God reveals, that God shows, okay? When we talk about general revelation, we're talking about what God reveals in, in creation. In the way that he's uh, created things, he reveals things, what God reveals. And we'll look at some passages in a moment about this, but God reveals certain things in creation. There's things that we can understand about God in the very way that he's created things, okay? As opposed to, um, this is always kind of hard to pin it down, but uh, what special revelation, what God Reveals, uh, what might I just say, with words. Language, com communication, uh, verbal, not always verbal, but, but, but with words. And so, uh, special revelation has been going on since even before the fall, right? What did God do with Adam? He spoke to Adam, Right? Um, he didn't just leave Adam to ponder creation and figure out God. God actually spoke to Adam. It's special revelation. Uh, general revelation uh, is typically more implicit, whereas special revelation is explicit. So uh, analogy, illustration of this uh, I've given before. Uh, when I was growing up, 
sometimes my mom would put a, the, the trash bag by the door going outside, right? Was she communicating something to me? <laughs> yes, right? What was she communicating? Take the trash out. If I didn't take the trash out, would I be responsible for disobeying my mom? Yes, right? It, but it was implicitly revealed to me. She didn't use words, but it was a clear statement of what I ought to do. As opposed to explicit, that would be my mom saying, hey, take out the trash. She says it with words, okay? Now, could I disobey both of these? Yes, right? I could, could I twist uh, this? I see the, the garbage bag by the door, and I think, well, someone really just must like a garbage bag by the door. Could I twist that communication sinfully? Yes. Could I also twist this? Yes. Oh, take the trash out? Okay. You know, I go in the kitchen and I start taking trash out of the trash bag and laying it on the floor. I took the trash out, Mom. Right? I, either way, I can twist it, but is one maybe harder to twist than the other? This one's harder to twist, right? But you have a difference there. Uh, and another note, special revelation uh, is more uh, relational. It's God establishing a relationship with people. You know, God speaking to Adam in the garden. This is, this is the terms of the relationship. You shall not eat from that tree. Right? This is what it looks like to walk with me. Uh, he, he's establishing a relationship with Adam. So we have these two differences. And what our passage is saying here, what the, uh, the, the statement is saying there in the confession is that this is insufficient to save a person. This does not reveal what we need to know to be saved. You can't look at a tree and ponder and figure out, oh, I'm saved because God sent his son into this world to become a man to live in my place, to die in my place, that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended on high. You can't look at a tree and figure that out. It's, it's not revealed in general revelation how we are to be saved. But there are things that are revealed in general revelation. Let's turn to Psalm 19. I'm going to go a little out of order from the, the statement on the confession, but uh, first of all, we see that general uh, revelation includes uh, God's works of creation, that God reveals things in the very way uh, he's created things. We can look at things in creation and learn things about God. Chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You look up in the sky and you, you see the glory of God. It shows his handiwork, what he's able to do. It reveals things about God. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Another thing we want to add is who, who has access to general revelation? Everyone, right? Goes out to the whole world. Uh, 
Everybody sees it. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then verse 7, it's interesting, you have a transition. So verses 1 through 6, it's talking about general revelation, how God reveals himself in the way uh, things are created. But then verse 7, listen, the law of the Lord, what's that talking about? The word. It's talking about special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What is God's word able to do? Save us, right? Revive the soul. And so we could continue on, but you see there's a comparison that the psalmist is comparing what God has revealed in general revelation, what God has revealed in special revelation, his, his words. There's a difference. Uh, turn to Psalm 104. We see that God also uh, is revealed through his providence, the way that he... Uh, provides, the, the way that he's uh, sovereignly working throughout history, that God reveals himself. Um, we'll just start in verse 19. The whole chapter would be beneficial to read, but for the sake of time, we'll start in verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So here we see also not only uh, just in creation, but just the way that he provides through creation. We learn things about God that it's God who provides foods for the lions. It's God who made the moon for a purpose to provide so that we can mark the seasons. That's God's providence in the way that he's created things, and it reveals things about God, right? It reveals how great he is, how wise he is, how gracious he is. And turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 19. Here we, we see the revelation of God in the light of nature. And that, that's not a phrase that we use much anymore, but it's, it's talking about, in this instance, the things we know innately. The things a person knows deep down that they just know um, we're not born a blank slate. You know, we're born with certain actual knowledge of things and understanding of things. And one of those things is actually a knowledge of God, that God has implanted in each person a knowledge of himself. Uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God is actually uh, not just revealed in creation, but, but every person actually perceives God in the way that things are created. They, they know God. 
in one sense. So much so that they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they, they knew him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see that God is revealed to all men. All men deep down know God, but the problem is they suppress that truth. They hold down that truth of God that they know. It's a moral problem. Um, continuing on in chapter 2, 14. This, is more, this passage is more talking about the knowledge that we uh, know within ourselves. For when Gentiles, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have this. They don't have Scripture. They don't have the Old Testament. Who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The Gentiles who do not have this special revelation actually have the law of God written on their heart. And they show that when their thoughts either accuse them of sin or excuse them of sin. There's a standard that they're uh, 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 testing things with. And because of sin, it's, it's twisted and, and all that. But, but they show that the work of, law, of the law is written on their heart because they feel guilt when they do something wrong. Or they seek to, even if they did something wrong and they seek to excuse themselves, that's showing the work of the law on their hearts. They're trying to say, well, no, I I didn't really do that bad thing. They have a knowledge of what is good and right, though sin twists that knowledge. They have a knowledge uh, of God's law through general revelation. Now, with that in mind, there's a lot of things revealed in general revelation. Uh, who God is, some of his attributes, his eternal power, even his grace in providing things for us, and his, his mercy. And we can learn a lot of things about God through general revelation. But is general revelation enough to save a person? Why not? People are shaking their heads no. <laughs> Why is Okay, and what is found in God's word that is not found in general revelation? Christ. Christ. That makes this necessary. It's a necessity because no one will reason themselves up to a saving knowledge of God. You can't look at the ocean enough to figure out the gospel. And so scripture is necessary. It's a necessity. It's the only place that we can find Christ. It's the only place where Christ is revealed. The gospel is revealed. And so it makes scripture uh, most necessary because general revelation is not enough. And that brings us to our next statement there. Because general revelation is not enough to save man, because looking at birds in the air won't bring you to Christ. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, different times, and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. In other words, because general revelation is not enough to save a person, God speaks. 
God reveals uh, his will. God reveals uh, how a person is to be saved through, through words, not just through how things are created. And we see this uh, in Hebrews chapter 1. This is basically the statement of, of verbatim uh, quote of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. I think actually if you have a King James uh, version, this will be pretty much a direct quote because they use the fun word sundry. That's a good word. (laughs) Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So because this is insufficient, long ago, many times, different ways, God spoke. God spoke. Now, it says that uh, many times, in many ways, what are some ways that uh, God uh, spoke throughout the Old Testament. So Mount Sinai, what do you have at Mount Sinai? Giving the law? Yeah. Yeah, you actually have God speaking uh, uh, with Moses through this uh, sort of uh, physical manif- appearance of God, even though we know it's not actually God, but he shows his power and all that. And then what else does he do on Mount Sinai with his finger? He jots down the Ten Commandments using what? Words. Right? This is my will. He reveals those things. How else has God uh, uh, revealed himself and declared his will to his people? Okay, what happened with Isaiah? Okay. Yeah. So we not only have this sort of awesome display with the clouds and the thunder and all that, but God also revealed his will and himself through the prophets, through, through prophecy, right? What else? A donkey. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. You have the, uh, I always have a hard time saying these words, the uh, Urim and the Thummim, right? We don't quite fully understand, but the stones that somehow God would communicate uh, his will to his people through, the, through that means. You have uh, him appearing, sometimes in the form of a person, right? Talking face to face with someone. You have the burning bush. God declaring his will, revealing himself to Moses. Sundry times, sundry ways. Different times, different ways. He, he reveals himself, right? We see that throughout Scripture. And we move on. We see special revelation in Scripture. And that's all special revelation. When God spoke through the burning bush, that's special revelation. God communicating things using words. Okay? But we move on. And afterward, after that, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same, that special revelation, holy unto writing, completely into writing. So in order to preserve these things that God had uh, revealed 
to uh, make sure for a more uh, sure establishment and comfort of the church against our three greatest enemies, right? Our, our this, the flesh, the devil, and the world. That revelation was put down wholly, completely uh, into writing alone. We'll see. Why is it important that God's revelation be written down? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, so if, it, if it's just oral, if it's not written down, it's like a game of telephone, right? And, and is there any way to really test that oral re- account? Can you go back to so-and-so 2,000 years ago and say, hey, did you really say this? No, right? So, but can we, and we, with all the manuscriptual evidence, can we, do we have fragments of the Bible from 2,000 years ago, just about? Yeah, and we can go and look at it and say, is this really what it said? And we can compare it. And we can see that it really is what God has revealed. So there's uh, perhaps uh, just the um, innate sort of problems of an oral passing down of things. What else? To spread the word? Yeah, is this... This is uh, much easier to be able to bring this to the world and leave it with people who are then able to, I, I can't be everywhere at once, neither can you, right? But we can have Bibles all across the world, yeah. What do you mean? So God, yeah, so God spoke in Christ, he's the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why, uh, why is that, what's the connection with that to why it's important that God's revelation be written down? Oh, I'm sorry. You, you, I thought you were saying what else. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, are there people in the world that would love to twist what God's word says? No. So if we don't have it written down, can we compare it? I mean, I can compare this Bible with the Jehovah Witness Bible, Right. And we can go back and look at the, man, the manuscripts and see and compare whose Bible is actually right because it is written down, right? Even our own sin. We have our own sin as a problem that would love to twist God's word. And so if it's just something I heard, it's a lot easier to then maybe twist it a word or two to something that's more agreeable to what my sin wants. As opposed to it being down in writing, I'm confronted with this. I can't, you know, I, you could be like Jefferson who cut out pieces of the Bible, and, but it's a lot harder to do that sort of thing. And so because uh, God revealed himself uh, through special revelation in different ways at different times, uh, he's then put it into writing, uh, which protects his word. And this brings us to our last point, the cessation, the ending of additional special revelation, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Here's the kicker. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. 
what this is saying is Scripture is most necessary because, not only is this insufficient, but because special revelation has ceased. That if we're to look for special revelation, the only place where we can find it is here. Okay, and we see that. Uh, Let's continue reading that passage in Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, see the transition there? He used to speak at different times and in different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So yes, God used to speak through visions and through uh, burning bushes and through uh, this thing and that thing and the other. But in these last days, now that Christ has come, the full uh, revelation has come in Christ, he no longer speaks in those ways. And so that begs the question, why don't we need any more words from God? Why don't we need more special revelation? This is sufficient. This is enough. And this is enough to do what? To save us because it reveals who? Christ. And it reveals him sufficiently. It's sufficient. And so, you know, my experience of uh, this idea that God still speaks, um, it, it, it... let me say this. It's helpful to understand what is the purpose of God's special revelation. What is the purpose? The purpose has always been centered on Christ to reveal to us law and gospel. You never see a word from the Lord where he tells someone that you're supposed to work at Denny's or you're supposed to marry this person or that person. He does reveal what to look for in a godly spouse, right? And, and the content of his words are always focused on the, the saving knowledge of the Son. And that comes with it, law, right? Because we need to know why we are to be saved. It comes with it, how we're to worship God and those sorts of things, what we're to do in light of being saved. But because we have the sufficient word of God that reveals those things, we don't need additional revelation of God. And if we say that we need more words of God, whether we mean it or not, we're saying that this is not sufficient. We're saying that this is not enough. And furthermore, if God still reveals new things with words, is this most necessary? Is this a necessity? If God still speaks with words in other ways than this, is this a necessity? It's not, if that is true. And and you see that uh, groups like the Quakers kind of took that to its logical end. Not everybody does that. Where if God speaks to us still with the Holy Spirit through, through words, then we really don't need this. This is just old and sometimes hard to understand and 
when I could have the new, fresh revelation of God. And so that sort of thought, if it's taken to its logical end, ends up diminishing the authority and the sufficiency and the necessity of Scripture, the inscripturated Word of God. Why is it important in our context to understand that special revelation ceased with the coming of Christ and the apostles finished record slash explanation of Christ? Why is that important here in Fallon to understand that? Jamie, you're laughing. The Mormons, yes. <laughs> because they claim, right, that special revelation continues. And so we need to have a defense against that. We need to understand why does God speak? It's to reveal the Son. That's the ultimate end of it. To reveal how sinful man are, are to be saved and to live in light of that. Because if that's the case, yeah, I, I think it's helpful. One way I look at Scripture is, and Jesus himself interpret, interpreted Scripture with him being the center of it, him being the point of it. We see on the road to Emmaus, right? The Old Testament, what does it do? It predicts Christ. This is what he will be like. He will be a much better prophet, priest, and king. He will be a better sacrifice. He will be the Messiah that you must have, right? And then you get, you get to the Gospels, and what, what, what is their focus? Their focus is Christ is here. The Christ that was predicted in the Old Testament is here. This is what he did. This is what he said. And then, and then you get to the book of Acts, and, and what do we see there? It's Christ proclaimed. The church going out with that message, the saving message of Christ, going out to the ends of the, of the earth. And then you get to the epistles. What, are, what do the epistles do? They explain Christ. They explain the meaning of what he did, the meaning of the things that he said. And you get to Revelation. What does that reveal to us? It reveals to us that Christ is coming back, the end of the story. Is, that, is there any more story to add about Christ? We got the beginning and we got the end. <laughs> and so if, if Joe, Joe Schmo or Joe Smith comes along and he says, I have a new revelation of God. We throw out the red flag because God's word is sufficient. It's complete. We know the beginning. We know the end. There's nothing more that needs to be revealed about the eternal Son of God dying for sinners such as us. And so Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is most necessary because general revelation is insufficient, because special revelation has ceased, and that brings us to the last question. How should this view of Scripture influence missionary endeavors? If this is most necessary, how should that influence missionary endeavors? Yeah, Scripture is the source of the authoritative source of objective truth, and it reveals the gospel. Absolute, Absolute truth. Yeah. 
And it seems like maybe there's something that says that in the Bible, isn't there? Romans 10, right? What does Romans 10 say? Sorry for those who are listening on the recording. Sarah Frey said that we have to share the gospel. It's not enough just to live our lives. <laughs> Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in uh, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are they to believe if someone isn't sent to tell them? They're not going to be able to reason up to it. The, the guy in the uh, wherever, some island uh, in the Asian Pacific, he's not going to be able to reason himself up to salvation through general revelation. We must send someone to him. We shouldn't expect that God is going to communicate to him with words. We must send someone to him. Right? This should motivate us. That if, this is the most, uh, if this is most necessary, if this is the only place where Christ uh, is found, if this is the only source of gospel truth, then we need to bring this message to the lost all over the world. And more than that, we need to translate it into languages that people can understand. We can't sit on our laps. And that's, we're, we're highlighting Dick and Shirley Walker this morning. That's exactly what they did. They tra translated God's word. Why? Because that people group needs God's word. Because, again, general revelation is insufficient and God has ceased special revelation. And just as a side note, does, you know, I've talked about how God doesn't speak in our heart. Does God work in our heart? Yes. Does God work and change our desires for things? Yes. Okay, there is that idea of providence and God working through us, but I don't see a warrant in Scripture for God speaking special revelation, explicit words from God uh, uh, through impressions or, you know, to our heart inwardly. And, um, and I just say that because that's, that's my background. That's something that I had to really struggle with. Um, and really, it caused a lot of damage in my life, thinking that I had to search for the voice of God here when I had the sufficient voice of God here. And so, again, Scripture is most necessary. It's the only of its kind. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal such grand truths to us, that you do reveal things about yourself in creation, that we see your, your glory, your, your power, your wisdom, your, uh, even your grace, that the sun uh, shines on the just and the unjust alike, that you uh, provide, that you uh, give food at their appropriate times, that the sun comes up every morning and goes down every night. It's a sign of who you are and how good you are we thank you for uh, revealing your law to us, that every uh, person has, uh, though a twisted understanding, some understanding of what is good and evil, and that in that we see our great guilt, that uh, we 
accuse people of guilt of the very same things that we do. We, we, in a sense, pointing the finger back at ourselves, declaring ourselves guilty. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you don't just leave us in that guilt, but that you reveal to us our great need for Christ and your provision of Christ. That Christ became a man, that he lived in our place and died in our place, that he rose from the grave, that he ascended on high, that he's even sitting right now at your right hand, ruling over all things. Lord, we thank you for this gospel truth, the good news of Christ and what he has accomplished for sinners such as us. We pray, Father, that we would have a heart to bring this message to the lost, that we would see that, that they're, they're never going to reason up to the gospel on their own, that if all they see is us as nice people, then they will go to hell thinking we were nice people. We pray that we would bring this gospel message to them. And Father, we pray too that we would have a heart for the lost around the world, that we would be a, uh, we thank you for the opportunities we do have, that we are able to support missionaries who uh, don't just go to a place for a couple weeks, but, but who go there for their life, who put down roots, who get to know people, who get to know the culture, who who care for people in such a way that they bring the gospel to them. We thank you that we get to support such endeavors. And we thank you too for those who work hard, spending their whole lives translating uh, your word into languages that maybe only a few hundred people know. Recognizing that they must have uh, this word from you. That they must have this gospel message in a way that they can understand and, and comprehend. And pray for uh, for the, those uh, laboring in that way and I pray for ourselves that, that we would have a heart for those around us and we would bring the message of Christ to them. Now we would care more about their eternal salvation than our own comfort. Pray for your help. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys.